Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Welcome along, everybody, to Humanly. This is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman, thank you so much for coming along today. Oh, it's nice to be here, Daniel. Thank you. Dr. Kaufman, um, I first came across your work pretty much at the start of all this almost two years ago now. And the first time I heard you speak, something inside me just clicked and I thought, what this guy is saying is true. And I hadn't even looked into any of the research or evidence. I just knew that what you were saying was true. There was something inside me. I just felt it in my soul. I felt it in my heart. And obviously I have been trying for the last two years to prove myself wrong, um, looking at all the, all the evidence and I can't seem to find anything, but um, yeah, you've changed my life. You've changed the direction of my life. And um I'm forever grateful for that because you've helped me to understand the human body far better than I ever thought I would. So um, yeah, before we get into the conversation today, I just wanted to say thank you so much because you've been a, a huge impact and um, I'm very indebted to you. Well, you know, I really appreciate that. And obviously we resonate with a pursuit for the truth um, and, you know, we're trying not to be, uh, blinded and influenced by our prior beliefs. And so that's a really Im important approach uh, to see. But, you know, it's it's more of like kind of passing the torch because I didn't, you know, I wasn't the first one to make these realizations um, because other people actually looked at the science before I did, especially during the, you know, era of the AIDS pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I could say the same thing about several um, you know, different people, especially Nancy Turner Banks, uh, whose book I read that really kind of helped provide the context for me to look at the, you know, the current scientific evidence. And I guess for some of the people listening, they probably don't even have any clue what we're even talking about. Um, and what we are talking about is germ theory and terrain theory and the fact that we're not saying there isn't any evidence out there for viruses existing or causing disease. Um, we just haven't been able to find it. And we have certainly got some ideas about what might really be going on. Um, so just to sort of introduce the discussion today, a few of my listeners probably know who you are, um, but would you be able to just quickly introduce yourself a little bit of your professional background um, and yeah, we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I uh, came up as a, an allopathic physician. So actually, I was a physician assistant first. I worked in oncology and hematology. And then I went back to medical school and did my uh, residency in psychiatry at Duke and then did a fellowship in forensic psychiatry and used to be an assistant professor and uh, uh, helped uh, run the fellowship program and did a whole lot of things. I started up a medical device company. It was a suicide prevention device for uh, primarily jails. Um, I worked in a lot in the correction system in psychiatry as an expert witness and uh, clinically. And uh, the last few years of my career in that respect, I essentially was just 
taking teenagers off medications and trying to address the, you know, true issues of those traumatized um, uh, individuals. And then, you know, at the onset of the pandemic, I started investigating the science behind, uh, you know, the evidence for this new illness and discovered some major revelations that um, there was essentially just smoke and mirrors and not any real evidence of things. So I put this message out, you know, once I felt that I had uh, done enough research that I was confident in my opinion, and I put it out there also, you know, for anyone to challenge. And uh, fortunately, you know, people did listen to some degree and this, you know, message of, the truth, which is that there actually isn't even a virus at all <laughs> um, related to this pandemic, uh, you know, has now uh, become uh, a major point of discussion. And this is really, you know, just the tip of the iceberg, of course, but it's uh, so important because, you know, everything is driven by these underlying uh, beliefs, essentially. And if you, you know, as a physician, in my training, of course, I was taught about germ theory. I was taught about all these different microorganisms that are alleged to cause disease, but never once did they talk about, well, how do you figure this out in the first place? Like, what's the proof of this or that? And so no doctor has ever um, looked at this unless they've taken their own initiative to do so. And the onset of this pandemic, you know, inspired me to do that. And once I dove deep, I found that there's simply not the prima aphasia evidence at all that germs cause disease. And of course, especially viruses, which were, are so murky and um, obfuscated in the scientific uh, literature. Yeah. And I clearly remember one of the first times I heard you on a podcast or a webinar, um, you were talking about um how they isolate viruses and, and the studies that they did to try and prove contagion. And I thought something in, like I knew in, instinctively inside myself that what you were saying was true, but I had to go and find that information out for myself and verify it. So I went and I looked and I spent hundreds of hours. Like I've, I've found <laughs> dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of these experiments where they tried to infect people and not once could they ever do it. Not once. Um, and it's kind of shocking. I mean, I'm so glad that you went and looked and I always encourage people, you know, don't just accept my opinion, but do go and look because, you know, there are many other doctors and scientists, of course, who are on our side and they realize that the pandemic is a false narrative, hmm. but many of them are just not really willing to go down to the root layer um, and actually look at this issue. And they just kind of accept what virology says. But the truth is that there are well-established scientific methods of doing experiments to actually show these, these size particles because they've scientists have done this successfully and you know with bacteriophages and with exosomes. And they can, you know, isolate these things and actually show that they're real. But in virology, they, they don't use the standard approach, right? Because they started out trying to use the standard approach and they came up empty. So they essentially invented a new procedure different from every other 
field that looks at microorganisms because they needed to create something that would give them positive results and drive the field. And it was really brought on by the success of the vaccine in industry because John Enders, who uh, developed this, you know, special technique that uh, can't fail um, because he won the Nobel prize for helping to develop the polio vaccine because he came up with a new way to make it much, much easier to manufacture vaccines. And interestingly, that was by, you know, uh, quote unquote, culturing the virus in fetal cells rather than in the type of cells that the virus supposedly infects, right? Because the polio virus infects the, you know, spinal cord tissue, allegedly. And, but it's really hard. It was really, really hard to grow that type of tissue in a culture dish, but fetal cells are very easy to grow because they're like close to stem cells. So they grow readily um, to create all kinds of progeny. And this method is really the origin of this whole false uh, narrative of viruses causing disease. Because essentially what they're doing, like, People say to me, many clinicians, like, for example, I gave a uh, lecture to about 60 clinicians last weekend, and I went through all the studies and I explained to them what, how they isolate a virus. And people just looked at me like I was off my rocker. Um, about three people at the end came and said, wow, this is fantastic information. Where do I learn more? And those people weren't even clinicians. I think clinicians are so indoctrinated, they can't see the forest for the trees, um, well, you know, in uh, where you live, if a physician even talks about what we're talking about, they can be suspended or lose their registration. Yes, that's right. Right. I mean, they received a written communication stating that outright. And then we have nurse whistleblowers who have come forward re recently uh, from Australia also who have said that basically they're not allowed to say anything, to talk about this issue. They're not, they're instructed specifically not to talk about it with patients who come in mm. suffering, you know, from vaccine injuries. Mm. That's right. It's, it's anti-science is what it is. Um, but well, I mean, it's, it's anti-truth and it's also anti-human yes. because who's suffering here, you know, innocent, well-meaning people or people who are just being coerced are suffering with severe disease and often with their life. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. It, there's so many aspects to it, which is why I think um, it's the most important thing that we have to get to the bottom of, because if we don't, and I think you've said this before, if we don't get to the bottom of this, it's just going to continue into perpetuity. So I, I think one of the things that clinicians will probably say is I can jump on to PubMed right now and I can find a thousand articles saying XYZ virus has been isolated and we've shown it to infect cells. Um, so when you see a paper with that title, what do they actually mean that they're isolating a virus? Well, you know, as you know, they invented a special meaning. So just like the, uh, they invented a special experiment, not using the standard for isolating and purifying a microorganism or a nanoscale particle, they had to change the meaning of the word to fit their new um, experiment, right? That it only occurs in virology and no other fields. 
And so they changed the meaning of the word isolation to mean the opposite or an inversion of meaning, because in the experiment, instead of separating out uh, a possible virus and getting it by itself, which is what isolate means, they take something that may contain a virus, right, which is a biological fluid, and they instead mix it with many more ingredients <laughs> and, and sources of other particles, right, by putting it in a foreign cell culture. And, you know, they say that this is a called a viral culture. But the thing is, they never actually show that there's a virus in there. They just show this indirect evidence which we've seen can be created without even a source of the virus at all, right? And that's what they call isolation. So if you don't look at the experimental procedure that they're actually conducting, and it, it's super important for anyone, if you're gonna look at a scientific paper, the first section you should read is the method section, because you cannot um, give a valid interpretation of the results unless you know exactly what experiment has been done. And it's already been shown that more than half of published scientific papers that their conclusions are actually false, right? And this is a, a problem with the peer review and the amount of publications and trying to fill up their pages that they just accept stuff that's not true, right? But this comes from the mainstream, right? The, the author was a professor at Stanford who made that report, right? Professor Ioannidis. Hmm. So, so we have to look at that context. And then you have to look at the experiment and say, you know, do the results and conclusions, you know, first of all, is it even possible to draw these conclusions you know, from the results. And, and, you know, you, you uncover some really interesting things when you actually read the papers, like not just look at the title or not just read the abstract, but read the whole paper. And, you know, for example, early on, I uncovered that in these papers that claim isolation for, you know, SARS-CoV-2, the uh, alleged virus that turns out to be just a computer simulation, they said in early publication, right, that this virus is the cause of this disease. And then they referenced another paper. But then if you go back to that other paper, they didn't say in that other paper that it was a cause of disease, right? They said it was potentially associated. Hmm. And so just like from, you know, it's, it's almost like the telephone game that, you know, kids play in school where they, you know, whisper something in the other one's ear and through a chain of people. And on the other end, you never get the same thing. It's like the, <laughs> the, the scientists who publish these papers can't read, right? They, they change the words. I mean, I don't think it's a matter of misunderstanding. I think it's intentional, but they made this claim with no scientific basis. Just someone just wrote it in a paper, <laughs> right? And that's, the, that's where the whole thing comes from. But if you go and read the experiment and the methods, you'll see that what they're doing, it's not actually possible to show that there's a virus in the person causing the disease because they just don't do the right experiment. All you'd need to do is just take the virus out of the person, just like you take the bacteria out of the person, just like you take the exosome out of the person, just like you take the bacteriophage out of the bacteria right? Because you're saying that's where it's causing the damage. So that's where you have to find it. All you have to do is then find it 
purify it, right? Which there are standard methods that have existed for a century using centrifugation and a, a density gradient with sucrose. Very straightforward. Um, in the exosome literature, right? And exosomes are the same exact particles that they say viruses are, except they come from our cells when our cells are injured with some kind of uh, you know negative influence. And you can find papers where they actually review all of the ways to purify those particles because with exosomes, they actually do isolate them. And then once they do that, they can actually do what's called the characterization. So they can tell exactly what it's made of by taking it apart and figuring out what those things are, right? Like, you know, if you, you have a house and you demolish it and then you analyze what are the building materials. So when you have a, a pure isolated thing, you can do that. But that's never been done with viruses. Like even this spike protein that they talk about, right? You would think, or, or you, you know, you would assume that what they did is they had this virus in a test tube, they maybe mixed it with some enzymes or chemicals, and they were able to separate the protein that was on the envelope, right? And then they could look at that protein and do analysis on it, right? They could do mass spec on it, they could do amino acid sequencing, etc., and characterize what it is. And then, then they'd know it was a real thing. But that that's never been done. Mm or even attempted, right? It's just, they made up this whole spike protein from putting short little genetic sequences that they don't know where they came from into a computer. And then they use recombinant organisms to manufacture it and do studies on it and found that it was actually toxic. But they never, like it, it's totally created by a computer simulation. It's never, existed in the real three-dimensional world yeah a, a virologist has never had a beaker with just sars-cov-2 viral particles in it <laughs> but I don't they've think never had a be a virologist has never had a beaker with just the particles of any virus that's alleged to cause disease hmm. but yeah. they have had it with exosomes from um, aids patients or and cancer patients and many others and, and bacteria as well i mean bacteria are one thing so one thing that we well bacteria possibly. are much much easier to work with um, because they're larger and they could be seen under a light microscope and they're also actual living things <laughs> so so they can reproduce on their own right these viral particles are just basically you know uh dead material right? They're, they're not really living things in any way that we understand life. And, and they're so small, right, that they can only be seen under an electron microscope, not a light microscope. Mm. Yeah, they, they seem to be the gatekeepers to the information. We're the only ones who can see them. We're the only ones who can do these studies and everyone else just believe what we say. And all you have to do to disprove what they're saying is true is just to read the methodology section of any virology paper and you immediately know that they're not isolating anything um and that was yes even a paper absolutely that, there was even a paper i read a little while ago that said um exosomes and viruses are produced by the cells at the same time they're the same size they're the same shape they're indistinguishable they have the same functions they both travel to distant cells and infect others i was like of course 
Like, <laughs> of course, because you, you have to say that because there's nothing there that you guys can actually show that does all of these things. Um, I think they're probably uh, laying the blame a lot on exosomes, but they're not an organism or a particle that can infect someone. So there is no contagion at all, is there? Well, there's, you know, there have been many experiments trying to prove contagion. And, you know, when we're, just to clarify what we're talking about, contagion, you know, is when one person has a microorganism causing a disease, right? And then they pass that agent of disease to another person, right? And then there are different ways this can allegedly happen. But whenever there's been an experiment trying to show that, like taking healthy people and make them sick by passing the germ, they've never been able to get anyone sick. So we observe sometimes people getting sick around the same time, but we have no evidence that they're passing germs back and forth. So it, it's another one of these, you know, misunderstood things or, or it, you know, it's a complete uh, falsehood. Actually, it just doesn't work that way in the real world. But we're told, you know, we're essentially indoctrinated into that belief from really, really young age. You know, I mean, when we're toddlers, we're told about that, that we can pass, you know, germs to other people or we could get sick from them. So, but we've never tested this belief. You know, we just observe that sometimes people get sick around the same time, or it seems like there's a chain of illness, that kind of thing, but we don't know the mechanism of that. Um, we've never tested it and we've never applied it to germ theory because, you know, germ theory is pretty clear. It says the germ causes the disease. So if you have the germ, you're going to have the disease. If you don't have the germ, you won't have the disease, right? So if you're in a family and someone gets sick and you're all around the dinner table together and interacting with each other, like most, you know, in a close way, like most families are, every single person in the house should get sick. Mm. You know, like, for example, um, you know, when uh, when I was married, I would always my ex and I, when we were sick, we would still sleep in the same bed together. Mm. Right. Um, we would still hug each other. We never you, you know, we're both doctors. So we knew like we would always be around sick people at the hospital. We never got sick. So we just had instinctive knowledge right now. Of course, if you asked us, we would say, oh, we could get each other sick. We're just taking the risk right? Because we justified it, but not once ever were we sick at the same time. Right. And, you know, once we had kids, there was more sickness uh, like that uh, when they were young, because unfortunately we, we uh, vaccinated the children at the young age. And that's probably why they got sick frequently. But so we would, you know, sometimes she would be sick in one of the kids. Sometimes I'd be sick with one of the kids or, it would just be the kids and we wouldn't get sick, but we were never once sick at the same time. Mm. And that just wouldn't really be possible if germ theory contagion were true. We would get each other sick all the time, right? But we've never scrutinized it and said, and looked at our observations and say, does this match? We just kind of said, oh, pattern, people get sick together, germ theory, boom, match, right? Like uh, on autopilot, I mean, our, our brains are really amazing at pattern recognition, but because they're so good at it, they often recognize false patterns. So it's important always to test your observations, you know, against the theory and say, does this, does this match up the same way you 
read the method section, what the experiment is, and then the conclusions, and you say, do these things match up? And this is a question that comes up all the time. Um, if not a virus, then what causes illness in people? And maybe we can just touch well, on that very briefly. Yeah, sure. And, you know, so a couple of things that are important to um, set the groundwork for that discussion. And one of them is somebody, you know, made a, a claim that has many, many implications for everyone's day-to-day -day life. And that is that, you know, viruses cause disease. So the burden of proof is on them to, to, you know, show that that's true. I'm saying there's no proof of that. Right. So I'm not saying, and I have an alternative theory. This is like that. There are no viruses. That's not a theory. That's simply, there's no empirical evidence to, to conclusively show that there are viruses. That's simply the truth. Mm. Now it's a separate matter of what truly causes disease. Unfortunately, because um, medicine and medical research and the pharmaceutical industry have been 100% devoted to the germ theory model, no one has thought to look for an alternative cause. So I can't point you to studies, you know, uh, that would show you conclusive evidence, but I can describe my own observations and experience because uh, I've been, you know, studying natural healing for uh, almost five years now, and I've been, you know, teaching clients various methods, and I've got a lot of information about what people have done in situations and, and what's worked. And what I'm seeing over and over again is that there's really three main causes of people being ill, and which seems to be, you know, toxicity or poisoning is one major one. And that, you know, there's a quite an extensive list of things that can uh, cause damage through that pathway. Um, things you might not even think of as, as being toxic. Then the second category is malnourishment of some sort. And, you know, many of our cultures have evolved our cuisine into really unhealthy food. And we're, many of us are lacking major categories of nutrition. Um, and of course, there's even pharmaceuticals that make us more nutritionally deplete, like the cholesterol lowering medications, for example. So that's a big category. And then there's trauma and trauma can be physical. You know, you break your arm and it can be uh, what I call psycho-spiritual, which uh, we're everyone the world over is experiencing now um, in a common way. And it is resulting in a lot of suffering and illness. So when I've approached, um, you know, people with illness from this perspective and studied it and observe what is effective, it always follows these principles. So it's some kind of cleansing to remove the toxin causing the illness. It's some kind of nutritional repletion to make up for a deficiency and it's healing of the you know, psycho-spiritual self or the soul, right? Which a lot of that has to do with resolving traumas, but there are other factors, right? There's a lot of relationship work and things like that um, that go into it. And when people, you know, um, are motivated and, and deliberate and uh, put the effort into approaching those three areas, 
they um, invariably recover. And, you know, I've seen something and I know, you know, many of the practitioners out there have learned some of these same lessons through their experience. But when I started looking at people doing these kinds of natural methods, it was the first time that I saw in my medical career, people being cured Mm. of serious illnesses of chronic illnesses, excuse me. I mean, including cancer, autoimmune disease, heart disease, et cetera. And that these things are all a hundred percent reversible with the right information, the right effort, just through addressing those, those three issues. And so in my opinion, that's pretty strong preliminary evidence to show that these things are the cause of disease. And by the way, I didn't even realize that whole formulation until after I was two and a half years into studying this, because there's no like, um, I mean, there might be naturopathic textbooks, but I didn't go to any formal route because I didn't, I know that in naturopathic school that they're influenced by the allopathic medical system, right? Especially in the business model. So I didn't, I looked really to people who were outside of those systems primarily, but who had a lot of success, you know, and I tried many things myself and uh, learned, you know, like, for example, about the, the amazing healing powers of turpentine, Mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, is something very kind of out of the mainstream, although it used to be in the mainstream and it's actually still in one medical product that it's been grandfathered into, which is Vicks VapoRub. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, it, it's just, you can't deny what happens when people use this healing product, which is a natural product, you know, it's from the sap of pine trees. So it's really hard to, you know, kind of uh, accept that everything's upside down, but this really seems to be true. So if I give you kind of a formulation of a seasonal flu or cold, right? I think a a pretty accurate description. And we see that that essentially um, this is brought on by a drop in humidity and temperature in a seasonal pattern, right? Because we have biological cycles, just like all organisms, right? We have day night cycles, seasonal cycles, et cetera. And so this seasonal cycle is triggered to essentially clean your air filter. Very simple, right? You, you know, you've gone into change the air filter in your heat or in your car, and it's, you know, filled with gross stuff and that those things don't run all the time, but your air filter, right? Which is your upper airway, right? Your nose, your sinuses, your throat, your, your trachea, um, the inside, you know, the other distal areas of your bronchioles. And it's, it's filtering the air 24, seven, 365. And if you're not keeping it clean on an ongoing basis, your body decides it's time to clean it. So it sloughs off that outer layer of damaged tissue from all the crap that's accumulated there. And it brings in microorganisms to, you know, eat up the dead material and debris Their their excretions, you know, cause us to have inflammation and secretions. And that brings, you know, more nutrients to the area for rebuilding. And it removes the, um, you know, waste products 
uh, all this, you know, anytime our body puts out secretions, right, it's getting rid of something that it doesn't want. And so that's what's happening when you have that acute reaction, you know, that we would call it an infection, right, or flu, a cold, whatever, but it's just sloughing off the old air filter mm. and a new one is growing right underneath and, and simply that process. Now, people who, you know, have a really poor lifestyle and, and a, a big burden of toxicity in their body to the point that they have chronic diseases, right? Like COPD, diabetes, heart disease. When those people get the air filter change happens, there's so much stuff in their body that's dangerous. It can overwhelm the system. Right. And, and that can lead to, you know, the serious pneumonias and even death and, and other complications, but that's not a problem that just started that flu season. Mm. Right. That's been going on for years and it's the same thing. You know, they didn't uh, do anything to clean those filters in the body on an ongoing basis. And instead, you know, just poured the toxins in, you know, probably without, fully knowing it, but you know, that situation is what makes it serious in some people and less serious in other people. Yeah. I think you've explained that really well. Thank you. Uh, and if there is not a virus to make people sick, then what are vaccines for exactly? Uh, well, they're, I think, I think they're really actually to make us sick so that we'll depend on the medical system. And that will be, you know, weak and unable to realize that they're a bad thing. And we're being kind of manipulated in, in many ways in our lives, but uh, definitely by the medical system. You know, I mean, the, if you just think about the logic of vaccines and what they're supposed to do, and, you know, don't just apply this to the, these current genetic jabs, but think about all of the vaccines that, you know, are being or have been required for children and whatnot. Now, if you take the vaccine, you're supposed to not get the illness, right? So why would it be necessary to require everyone to get vaccinated? Mm. Right? Because if you make a decision that you don't want the illness, you can simply get the vaccine and then not worry. Mm. If someone else wants to take the risk and get the illness, isn't you know it, it's their choice, but it won't affect you if you're vaccinated. Right. So there's no reason to require everyone to do it. And but yet they're requiring everyone to do it. So you have to think, well, what's the logic of that exactly? Mm. And, you know, if you think the logic is herd immunity, um, it didn't doesn't really add up either, because, you know, until now, vaccines are only required for school age children. And so let's take an example of measles, for instance, right? Measles vaccine was required for all school children, but it's known that the immunity only lasts about 10 years, right? If you believe that there's such a thing as immunity to a fake virus. So that means that all these school children, when they're adults, they're not immune anymore. So since children only make up about 15% of the population, that means 85% of the population is not immune. But they say that you need, you know, like 95% to achieve herd immunity. So it's not possible to achieve the so-called herd immunity with the vaccine schedule, yet that's the justification for it, <laughs> right? Yeah. 
So everything is just, you know, if you look beneath the surface and ask the question, you know, what does this mean? And by the way, herd immunity has never been proven either. There's, it's only a theory hmm. and it, with computer models to back it up, but not, there's no actual population that they've ever proven has achieved herd immunity by vaccination or by natural infection at all. And there are many infections that just stamp themselves out without a vaccine anyway. Like if you look at things like scarlet fever, for example, there was never a vaccination for that and it just disappeared. Right. Because the, you know, the reason or the, the hypo hypothetical reason for that would be that there is some kind of environmental toxin that, you know, is present for a period of time and then it's not present anymore. So the disease goes away. Right. So many of these things were related to kind of like sewage and those types of conditions in cities, because you had people you know, in the past where there'd be a building where there might be 150 residents and they would have one toilet. Hmm. So you could imagine that everybody's waste was, you know, uh, like a, just everywhere uh, in that toilet <laughs> and everybody else was exposed to everyone else's waste. Hmm. So, you know, that uh, situation led to certain diseases. And then once it changed, then those diseases went away. Or, you know, you could look at something like polio. Um, and polio was, if you look carefully at the evidence, it seems that it was due to lead arsenate initially, which was a, a pesticide um, to try, initially used to try and stamp out uh, this invasive moth species. And then later uh, at the end, they switched to DDT and that uh, actually changed the clinical presentation slightly, but it was still called polio. And then once those environmental toxins went out of use, like magic, polio disappeared. And of course, a couple of years later, the polio vaccine came out and they, uh, you know, then they made it seem like that was the reason it went away. But, <laughs> but the timing just didn't match up because when it went away, there, there was people weren't getting the vaccine yet. Yeah. So, you know, but it was a, you know, smoke and mirrors trick. And then that's always, you know, said, Oh, the greatest miracle of medicine, the polio vaccine. Hmm. So with this new vaccine for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, is it even a vaccine by sort of vaccine traditional vaccine standards or is it something else? Well, no, of course not. Um, they had to change the, you know, definition. Actually, you can find they've changed lots of definitions related to vaccine, anti-vaxxer, all the, all these things have, you know, it's like you can just go in the Wayback machine and on miriamwebster.com or whatever, and find the definition from a year ago and look at it today. And you see it's changed, hmm. right? The meaning has changed. And this was really important for the regulatory process because it, these are gene therapy uh, treatments, right? The Moderna, for example, that's, that's all they've done is gene therapy um, research. They've never had an approved product uh, before. And uh, this is the same exact technology that they called gene, gene therapy when it was for cancer, but now for this purpose, they changed the definition. And that means that they didn't have to do certain testing, uh, like testing for shedding, for example, which I don't think is 
uh, a significant uh, phenomenon. However, it in other gene therapies, um, they've not been able to get beyond that testing because they showed that the foreign gene product was present in body fluids and that it was dangerous. So um, that's why they needed to change the definition and avoid doing those studies because it was too risky and they you know, needed to get this out on the market quickly. So, you know, they say that it causes you to make a spike protein, but there's actually no scientific evidence uh, that I would consider um, uh, solid to report that. There's only one tiny study out of Canada where they use some very strange assay. And uh, there was a very small number, you know, of vaccine recipients. So, you know, we don't really know what this thing does. We know a lot of people are, you know, seriously injured from it and uh, killed by it, but it definitely is nothing like a vaccine where it's supposedly a fragment or an intact actual microorganism. Now we know for viruses, that's not the case. It's just the fluid from a toxic cell culture, but nonetheless, it doesn't have any, you know, intended genetic programming in it. Yeah, I, I so, had a oh, totally sorry, different to interrupt you. No, no, that's quite all right. I was finished. I was just going to say, I saw a um, German PhD give a presentation maybe like a week or two ago, and he was talking about there being graphene hydroxide in these injections. And he was saying that they're acting like little razor blades, essentially, and yes. destroying tissue when they come into contact with it. And a light bulb went off in my head, and I thought, I wonder if the spike proteins, these little proteins that they're seeing in people's blood, are just the cellular debris being ripped off the insides of the endothelial cells from these little graphene hydroxide particles. Could that be? A yeah. Well, you know, this, um, uh, immune hybridization, uh, type of staining technique is not nearly as specific as you might think, you know, interestingly, there was, uh, an article from, um, I think it was kidney 360 that came out, uh, the summer before last that was talking about you know, that they found particles in kidney biopsies from, you know, before the COVID era hmm. that had the same exact appearance, right. That they say that these coronaviruses have, but obviously they were just exosomes from damaged kidney cells. And they looked at, they, they actually looked at what the, they said that the protein that were spikes on these particles was a known human protein. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it. Oh, clathrin. Sorry. They said it was clathrin right now. I wonder, does, you know, like what happens if you would have stained those with this antibody, would that come up positive? Right. right? I don't know. So, and also, you know, the, these gene sequences that were used to create the spike protein, they're human in origin, most likely. So we're just essentially showing, you know, human uh, genetic sequences or something like that, you know, by using these stains. I'm not, you know, convinced that what they're seeing is what they say that they're seeing. And it's a very small number uh, also of cases that they've done that kind of autopsy analysis. Um, with respect to uh, Dr. Nowak, who is, I think, who you're referring to with the graphene hydroxide, it's really difficult to tell. Um, you know, there, I used to, when I worked in biotech uh, briefly earlier in my career, uh, 
I had some experience in raw materials testing. So this is when, you know, uh, when a pharmaceutical company is going to manufacture things, they buy raw materials, you know, to use in their manufacturing process, but there's got to be very strict quality control measures to, to make sure that when you get a shipment of, you know, something that comes in, you have to know that it's actually that thing. So there's the, this kind of reference books that give you a specific assay or test to say that this material is this. So if you get a, you know, a cylinder of carbon dioxide, you can do this specific test, you know, you fill up a balloon, you blah, blah, blah. I don't remember what the specific test is, but there's one to identify and confirm every material. So there's a way to confirm also graphene oxide, graphene hydroxide through some kind of chemical assay or physical test. And I think that's what we really need to show a conclusive evidence about this in the vials. The, you know, a couple of interesting things that were noted. One is when I read um, toxicology studies of graphene and graphene oxide, it was reported that when you look at the cells under the microscope that have been damaged, that you, they're outlined in black, right? Which is the color of the graphene oxide. And I haven't seen any autopsy reports or biopsy specimens where it was reported that there was the black around the cells. And, uh, Dr. James Tour from uh, Texas, who's a chemist who does a lot of work with graphene and related products, he said that if it was in the vial, that the actual fluid would be black. Uh, interesting. So now I don't know at what concentration it would take to, you know, turn the water black or uh, whatever, but these, you know, we should see some additional separate information to validate, you know, these findings. Um, and, you know, the same thing, like you should, if it is acting like a razor blade, that should be visible uh, under the microscope when you look at the tissue that you should be see, you know, these micro lacerations uh, or, you know, some evidence of hemorrhaging or something like that, if, if it's causing, you know, mechanical damage like that. Yeah, fantastic point. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot more that we need to uh, look into around these injections, but, uh, regardless of what's in them or what's not in them, cause I don't think we're ever really going to find out, um, where in your opinion is all of this heading? What's the end? Well, I mean, I think Pfizer said that they would release the, uh, documentation in, uh, 2076. <laughs> so if any of us are still alive, we might actually find out then. Yep. Just have to hold out for another 75 years, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, you know, it's a very challenging scientific question, actually. I mean, I think most people have the impression that, oh, you could just, you know, get the vial, put it into a magic machine, and it just tells you all a readout of uh, everything that's in it, right? Uh, like uh, maybe in, in Star Trek. But, but actually, it, it probably requires like a analytical chemist and a molecular biologist um, and probably a nano engineer or an electron microscopist like uh, Antonetta Gotti, who can um, do elemental analysis um, under electron microscopy to combine with the other information. And then, you know, you need maybe uh, $5 million worth of equipment in a laboratory, <laughs> right? So obviously, since no official um, agency or university is going to do this kind of work because they would say that, oh, well, the 
manufacturer knows what's in it and they can tell you if you need to know, uh, right? <laughs> um, or we should just believe them. Look, they publish the ingredients list, um, right? So it, it's next to impossible. And we have all these, you know, uh, courageous and uh, resourceful scientists who are using what they have, right? The equipment they have, using the knowledge they have to try and figure out what's actually in here. But it's very, very difficult to have, um, you know, conclusive results. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's some things we know, some things we don't know. And then, of course, there's the additional complexity that we see um, that not the same thing is in all of the different manufacturing uh, batches or lots, right? Because there was an analysis um, published in a UK publication. Um, I can't remember right now, but it looked at in the US, the, the data from the VARES system, which is all the adverse events reporting data that it's all voluntary, but it has uh, quite a lot of uh, cases now and looked at the deaths by lot number and found that um, almost all the deaths were in a very small percentage of the manufacturing lots. Mm. So those vials must have had more toxic ingredients than the other vials, right? So if you're going to analyze the constituents, you, you need to get essentially a sample from every lot and then analyze each one right? Separately right. and uh, in all the different ways, you know, all the things that you want to look for. Yeah. It's a huge undertaking. And like that just right. reminded me of something actually that I read very early on in the, in all of this nonsense starting uh, was um, the outbreak in Bologna, I think it was in Italy. Uh, a few months prior to that, they'd vaccinated everybody with the meningitis vaccine. And then a few months later, everyone's getting this breakout of, of SARS-CoV-2 and people are dying. And I thought, well, I wonder if they've done any looking into whether or not that actually had any um, detrimental effects on people. But in your opinion, where's all this heading? Like, are they really looking out for our best interests here? Are they trying to help humanity with these um, lockdowns and vaccine mandates? Do they really care about us? Where do you think we're, they're trying to... Um, What's the final destination for these people? Well, I, I think they do care about us. They just don't care about us uh, from the point of view of our own welfare. They care about us uh, from the point of view of their welfare. Right. And, you know, what we see really here, and, and, you know, this is, of course, outside of medical science we're talking right now, but there's plenty of documentation that you can look at that discusses all these plans. Hmm. But where, where this whole, you know, psychological operation called the COVID-19 pandemic essentially is for the main purpose. And there might be some purposes to reduce the population and such, but I think the main purpose is to get people to have digital IDs because the digital ID is the essentially final solution, if you will, of how you can socially engineer all humanity. And, you know, this is the um, plan of technocracy, if you will, but it's also a globalist agenda, you know, that, that all of the world is in this together, right? And we see almost all the nations having the same exact policies. There's no individual sovereignty of nations. 
And the digital ID is initially, right, the justification is, oh, prove that you're vaccinated so you uh, are safe to come into our restaurant or health club or whatever. But very, very quickly, it's going to be tied to all of your finances because there's going to be the central bank digital currency that's going to be launched, right? They've already launched it in China. Um, if you look at the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central bank of central banks, right? And uh, I think, is it Christine Lagarde or uh, the head? They talking about this, basically putting pressure on all the banks, the other central banks to come up with this digital currency, get it, get the technology ready to go, right? Because they're going to leave the fiat cash system and create this digital fiat system. And once they move to this digital currency, then there'll be central control of all of your financial assets. And so, for example, if you don't get the next booster shot, they could actually take a fine directly from your account, mm. right? Instead of sending you a written notice where you have to, where you can dispute it, right? And there's, and show that it's not lawful, etc. This bypasses that they just boom, debit it right from your account, you have no ability to control it because you had to essentially agree to that to sign on to the system. And if you didn't sign on to the system, you can't participate in commerce. So, um, of course, once that happens, they're going to bring on other ways of controlling your behavior, like justified by, for example, the climate change narrative and other narrative based on false science mm -hmm. and computer models. But if you, you know, use too much carbon, then you'll you know, there'll be a fine for that or your privileges, because, you know, this is going to be your entrance to buildings, to your workplace, to the parking garage, you know, to the grocery store. So if you don't comply or follow whatever their directive is, you know, for this or that, you know, and then it won't just be about your vaccine. It'll be, you know, did you eat French fries? Um, you know, you're overweight or your cholesterol is high. Did you take your cholesterol medicine? If you don't, then you'll be locked out of things, right? Um, there'll be social credit as well, which will be, you know, you won't be allowed to criticize certain entities. Um, so it'll, it'll be the complete control system and it'll be much more powerful than the totalitarian experiments or societies of the past because they didn't have that surveillance ability, you know, with this kind of technology, you know, just with your phones, without even any implantable technology, which is of course going to come too. And there's lots of scientific papers on, on that type of technology, but just with the phone, you know, they'll be able to know every single thing you do and tie that to your access to finances, which, you know, is your ability to, to eat, to, you know, have transportation, to, um, you know, have uh, housing, everything. So it'll be extreme, uh, you know, control and surveillance system. And that, that's exactly where things are headed. So last question, how do we get out of this? What's, what's the answer? Do you think there's an answer? Absolutely. Of course oh, there is. <laughs> and I mean, I, I look at this whole situation as a major uh, final exam for humanity. 
you know, that we're being given this challenge to see if we can recognize the truth of our own reality, right? That we actually are empowered individual men and women, and that um, we are above all of this in the hierarchy. If we simply exert our power and influence, but exert it from a position, you know, of love and of beneficence for our brothers and sisters and, and ourselves and our children. And we simply um, create a new creation for ourselves. So we don't, we, we can't give in, acquiesce, comply in any way. That is anyone who wants to remain free and you can't delay taking this action any longer. You're going to be subsumed by the system if you don't make this change now is you have to simply stop complying with any of these false directives. And if you lose your job, then you lose your job. And that is actually um, probably will be a good thing because um, chances are that you probably don't like your job that much. And if you, you know, give in, it is still not going to be the same and you're not going to be guaranteed to have it in the future because there's going to be more and more and more requirements. And also, you know, that the plan is to automate almost all jobs. So your job will be, you know, not in existence uh, for many of us, the majority of us. So now is the time to simply make a decision. I'm, I'm not putting on a mask anymore. I'm not avoiding people. I'm not getting injected. I'm not showing a QR code. I'm not enrolling in the passport. You know, I'm not doing this anymore. And then start building your own things, right? Whatever it is that you want that they won't give you access to, um, you build it outside the system in parallel, right? So I'm starting to do this now, uh, you know, in the health uh, and biology area, right? That I'm trying to establish a knowledge base outside of the system, right? Called, I call it True Medicine University. I'm establishing a training clinic, like an apprenticeship uh, clinic to, um, bring in doctors who are exiting the system and give them an experience to learn the principles of natural healing. So the, this is, you know, what we all need to start doing and, you know, then we'll have our own um, ability to create these things in a way that serves the true interest of humanity, right? Through expression of that love and care right? For ourselves and our family and our brothers and sisters. And that will, you know, be realized and people will be attracted to it, right? Because it will be so human. And um, many people will get subsumed, you know, into that surveillance matrix system. And, um, but it, it will not last because it, it's never lasted before, you know, people, when they are stripped of their freedoms, it, it can't be maintained. Mm. Yeah. So maybe 
it'll be an attrition that the people will just die and, and extinguish themselves, you know, who get sucked into that, or maybe they'll fight back at some point, but you know, you don't have to be a part of that. Hmm. Absolutely. And it's good to have uh, good men like yourself on the right side of, of truth and love and light and freedom. And we just got to keep doing whatever we can do because I think it's more than it's bigger than us. You know, I think people Absolutely. Just think about how's it going to affect my life now? No one thinks about if we let this happen now, what's going to happen to our children and our children's children and forever on after. So we, it has to stop here. And I don't think anyone's coming to help us. We are the, the ones who are going to have to do this. That's right. Um, but I think we can do it. I really do. I still have faith in humanity and a lot of people are surprised about that. But yeah, I think we can really do this. And it's a necessary thing that we have to go through. It's uncomfortable, but it is necessary. Otherwise, we'd all still just be asleep and going through our day-to-day lives without questioning anything. So this has been a, a good thing, I think, in a lot of ways. Yes, I, I agree. And, um, you know, it, it's just a matter of perspective. Absolutely. Dr. Kaufman, thank you so much for coming along today. Um, before we wrap up today's conversation, where's the best place for people to go and have a look at your work? Um, maybe a, a website or a place where they can go and view some of your videos? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, definitely please go to my website at andrewkaufmanmd.com. And uh, there you can sign up for my newsletter. And so you can know all of the things because I have many projects, um, including an upcoming uh, True Medicine University presentation uh, where with John Stuart Reed, who's going to announce uh, exciting new discovery about the ability of sound to heal. And he's the inventor of the cymoscope. Um, and also I have uh, channels on many video platforms, Odyssey, BitChute, rumble brand new tube of course i'm staying away from the evil uh youtube uh, so please uh you know find me on one of those uh platforms and um you know check out my work and uh, all the other offerings great thank you so much i really appreciate you taking the time to come and speak with me it's been a pleasure and hopefully we can touch base again surely because there's still so many things i want to talk to you about but i want to respect your time and um we can always uh, schedule something again in the future so thank you yeah absolutely i would i uh, would love to come back thank you so much and uh, my heart really goes out to uh, the people of australia right. thank you so much dr Catherine. thanks for tuning in we hope you enjoyed the show if you have any questions or comments head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion make sure to follow us on facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals until next time